We're in Luke chapter 7 now, about halfway through. You can start finding it. It's on page 839 if you have a Bible like mine. Actually, 838, because we're going to start at verse 16. While you're turning there, let me just kind of review where we've been. In chapter 6, Jesus kind of begins his ministry by choosing the 12, because that is the essence of Jesus' ministry. It's, it's disciple-making. It's, it's making disciples who are going to make disciples who are then going to be sent in all, to the, all the world, not to make converts, but to make more disciples. And uh, there's this scene a little bit later in Luke's Gospel where Jesus is going to be teaching to this crowd of people, and someone's going to say, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are out there to see you. And Jesus just makes that a, a, a teaching opportunity. He says... My family are the people who hear God's word and do it. That's what a disciple is. And Jesus' family is a family of disciples. it's It's people who submit themselves to Christ and seek to become him by following him. And I think that's a great question for all of us to ask, especially as we do inventory in our lives this week as we approach a new year is, am I, dis- am I a disciple? I like how Dan kind of laid this out last week. And by the way, if you're uh, wondering what we're trying to do at Crossroads when you hear a guy like Dan Mike preach and all these other guys, uh, it should be pretty clear to you. We are a church planning church, and we are so excited about uh, raising guys like Dan Mike up and sending them out. And that's something that you ought to be praying about. Are you going to be a part of, of, of that church plant that will be launched out there? Um, and I just, I'm so glad that I get to be at a church where the elders and you allow me to be a disciple maker, where I don't have to preach sermons every week, but I can reproduce myself and other people like Dan Mike. I just say thank you uh, to that. Um, but Dan laid out last week, he, he said, as you look at chapter 6, Jesus here is, is, is describing his family because every family has a set of values, culture. This is, these are Jesus' values, and they're first laid out in terms of prop, propositions, 20 to 42. Then, then you have the parables in verses 46 to 49, and then in chapter 7 you have these real-life pictures. And uh, then in the first part of chapter 7 with these two stories... Um, you, you see those, those pictures come into life. Today, it's the protest. Yeah, I just did all peace. <laughs> I just did an alliteration thing, probably for the first time ever. Um, and today's text is going to be stunning. Before I do that, though, I, I have this thing going on in the back of my brain um, that is saying stop right now. And let's, as a church, be a family and pray for Mark Augustine. I don't know if you know, but Mark was submitted to the hospital, and I don't want to create any kind of panic or or fear, but he's having some heart issues. Like Mike Wheelhauer had uh, a couple of weeks ago. Kurt Kunst, I see you right out there. Kurt has had some of the same things. These are men in their prime who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are going for him. And I just want to pray for, for, for Mark. God, we pray for Mark. And I'm even going to include Mike and uh, Kurt in this, God, as these are men who love you. 
And they're all about the, the things that we learned in chapter 6 of, of Luke. I just pray all your protection on them. I pray full healing right now for Mark, God, that you would restore him. And God, we don't know what you have in store for any of us in this upcoming year, God, but we want to be disciples. People who, irrespective of our circumstances, are people that have our eyes fixed on you and want to follow you. And so today, as we look at even this text, God, I just pray that you would push discipleship deeper into our hearts, that we would know what it means, and that you would give us the grace in your Holy Spirit and the clarity of your word to walk it out. For the glory of Jesus Christ, and everybody said, amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 7, I'm going to begin at verse 16. And they were all filled with awe. I mean, Jesus just did a resurrection. Praising God, a great prophet has appeared among us. That's not an insult to Jesus. That's Deuteronomy 18, the prophet who is to come. Messiah is going to be a great prophet too. It says, God has come to help his people. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about these things. Calling two of them, John sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And when John's disciples came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. (laughs) And so he replied to the messengers, do you see? Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the gospel is proclaimed to the poor. And blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, or more accurately, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury and comfort are in the palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is, about, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among women, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is littler in the kingdom of of God is greater than he. And all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. They entered the movement. But look who doesn't enter the movement. The most religious people of Jesus' day. But Jesus went on to say, What then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the pipe for you and did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, but you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But time and truth go hand in hand. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, I find this to be one of the most stunning passages in Luke's gospel. 
Jesus, are you the Christ? Or should we look for someone else? I want us to just take note of, of, of the person who's actually asking this question. This isn't just some seeker. This is the guy who broke 400 years of God's silence with that prophetic, thus saith the Lord. I mean, when John showed up on the scene, people were saying, finally, God is speaking again. And John isn't just a prophet, he's the promised Elijah. And if you remember the story of Elijah, Elijah never died. So even Jews to this day think that Elijah just kind of roams the world in, in, in spirit form. And so the people, when they say John is the Elijah to come, they're, they're really thinking that this guy is Elijah. Not even just someone who's like Elijah, but he is Elijah. Which is why it then says in the Gospels that everyone from Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and Galilee, they all came out to the desert to see John. Many were baptized by him. In fact, the place where the people came, and I don't know if you got that PowerPoint. Did you, Rick, or not? That's okay. I like to take people in Israel up this um, high hill in the Judah Desert where you can look out and see the Dead Sea, and you can see where the Jordan kind of comes right in uh, to the Dead Sea, and it's right at that place that John is baptizing. And I like to tell them about the significance of this place. Does anybody know the significance of the place where John is baptizing? John doesn't just randomly choose a place. There's a reason why he baptizes where he baptizes. This is the very place where Israel first enters the land. And the text then says that John baptized on the other side of the Jordan. So you have to ask yourself, why the other side? What's the significance of that? And again, we need to see the picture because this is John's way of saying to the people, it's like, Israel, you think you're in with God just because Abraham is your father or because you have Jewish blood flowing in your veins. Uh Uh-uh. You need to repent. You need to come across to the other side and like your forefathers, repent and re-enter the waters. Re-enter your relationship with God. And I like to take people up there because I like people to imagine, can you imagine the flocks, the swarms of people? from Judea, Samaria, Galilee, all making their way to John at this place to re-enter, to repent. I'm telling you, revival. John, God used John to initiate revival. I'm going to push this further. One day, Jesus shows up and says, I want to be baptized. Have you ever asked yourself, why does Jesus want to be baptized by John? That seems a little bit strange. Well, in one sense, Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm entering this movement that John has inaugurated. 
And I don't know if you know this, but John and Jesus are a pair, and they're, they're a fulfillment of a pair previous to them, the pair of Elijah and Elisha. In fact, something very significant happens in the Elijah-Elisha story at this exact place as well. Does anybody know what story I'm referring to? Well, I think it's worth reading. Go to 2 Kings. Second Kings 2, verse 5, depicts what is the death of Elijah. It's not really his death. It's just an interesting story. It says, The company of the prophets of Jericho went up to Elijah and Eli- Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master, Elijah, from you today? And uh, Elisha's a little bit upset by this and a little bit snarky. He says, yes, I know, so shut up. I mean, he's just agitated by that. But then Elijah hears this and he says to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. Why the Jordan? The Jordan is this picture. It's this barrier that we have to pass to cross from death to life. And he says to Elisha, surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Picture this, these two men, great men walking on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. They're just wa- they're, they're, they're watching this. What's going to happen? And Elijah took his cloak, ro- rolled it up, and struck the water with it. And the Jordan divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? You want to hear chutzpah? Look at his answer. I want double. I want double of what you have, Elijah. Double your authority. Even Elijah says, you've asked for a difficult thing, dude. Yet, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. And as they were walking along and talking together... Suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a tornado. And Elisha saw this and he cried out what any disciple would say to his rabbi, my father, my father. And the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. But then he took hold of Elijah's garment or of his own garment, tore it in two, and then he picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him. And he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah. He struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, just like it had done with Elijah, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. And the company of prophets who were watching this said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet Elisha and bowed to the ground before him. Crazy story. What is the authority of Elijah? It's the authority to unleash the kingdom of heaven. 
See, if you ask the Jews of Jesus' day what the kingdom of heaven is, they would probably say, well, just look at the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Because to them, the kingdom of heaven is the lame walking, it's the deaf hearing, it's the blind seeing, it's the lepers being cleansed, and it's even the dead being raised to new life. And all they had, they didn't have a New Testament. All they had in the time of Jesus was an Old Testament. And so the place where they saw the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God moving into the chaos to bring shalom was most evident in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And then the prophets predicted a second pair of Elijah and Elisha. And I'll show you an example of this. Go to the last chapter of their book, Malachi 4. This is their Revelation 21 and 22. It's the day of the Lord, that great day that's going to come. And in verse 2 it says, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Who's that a reference to? Jesus, the Messiah to come. And you will go out and you will dance around like well-fed calves. And then you will trample on the wicked. They will be like ashes under the soles of your feet. Remember the the Torah of my servant Moses, the the decrees and the laws that I gave him at Horeb for Israel. And also see, I will send the prophet who? Elijah. To you. Before that great day. And he will return the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. That's an awesome picture. Son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings, the Messiah. But before him, a forerunner, Elijah. And this is why they called John the Elijah who is to come. And Jesus even says the same thing in our text. Look at verse 26. I want you to look at it. Luke 7, verse 26. But what did you see? A prophet? (laughs) You saw a lot more than a prophet, everybody. You saw the prophet. And then he quotes Malachi to say the prophet that Malachi talks about, the Elijah who is to come. And then Jesus says, none, there is none greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And I think this is one of those, those texts that we've misinterpreted because the word there is not the least. It's a comparative. It's, it's the lesser or the littler. And so this is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the lesser or the littler because John is the front runner and Jesus is second But Jesus says, but the one who's the lesser is still greater than John. That's me. I mean, that's Jesus saying, that's me. (laughs) Okay, and this is why Jesus comes, I think, to the Jordan, to the exact spot that Elisha gets Elijah's mantle, this double portion, because just like Elijah passed that double portion of that authority to his disciple Elisha, here John also says, I must decrease so that you, Jesus, may increase. And not only does Jesus get John's authority to unleash the kingdom of heaven, but even more than that, that voice from heaven, from God himself, says, this is my son. 
And Jesus gets authority from God himself. Now you might be saying, why do, why, why do I need to know all this? Because the Bible that Jesus read, the Bible Jesus taught, the Bible Jesus explained, the, the Bible that Jesus called us to know and to walk out, it's what we call the Old Testament. He said, I didn't come, come to do away with Torah. I came to fulfill it. I came to fill it up with all its meaning. And if you and I are going to know who Jesus is, we need to know more than the book of Romans and Philippians and Ephesians. As good as those books are, we also need to know what the Old Testament says about Jesus. And we need to understand that Jesus and John are the fulfillment of Elijah and Elisha. I mean, it's the good news of the kingdom. It's the hope of Isaiah 35, which says this. Your God will come, and he will come to save you. You know what salvation is according to Isaiah 35? The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. And Jesus already said that the gospel that he's going to proclaim, it's the gospel of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim gospel good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captive, to release from prison for the prisoner, to proclaim the year of the Lord's acceptance. If you think I'm pushing this a little bit too aggressively, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus inaugurates his, his ministry by going to his hometown, he reads from Isaiah 61, and then he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled. And then he gives two examples, first of Elijah, who brings the kingdom to a poor widow, and then of Elisha, who brings the kingdom to a Syrian general. And don't think it's coincidence then that the miracles that follow is Jesus healing the leper, healing the blind, healing the lame. And then when you get to Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus bringing the kingdom to a Roman general and then to a widow. Does anybody remember what town Jesus raises this widow's son? Well, just look. What is it? Chapter 7, Nain. Anybody know what Nain is called in the Old Testament? Shunem. Does anybody remember what Elisha did in Shunem for a Shunemite woman? He resurrected her son. Trust me, the people catch this. And they are dancing. They are giddy. They are more giddy than Michigan fans are right now that Jim Harbaugh's coming home. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Messiah has come for Takun Olam to fix and repair all things that are broken. Why did I say all this? I want us to feel the full significance of John's 
question. Jesus, are you the one, or should we look for another? This is devastating. Not just for John, who's asking the question, but it's devastating to Jesus. It's devastating to the whole movement. Because if we're honest here, and most commentaries don't want to acknowledge this, but I'm going to acknowledge just the fact that John is doubting. He is doubting if Jesus really is the Messiah. And it's this John. It's the John who proclaimed to everyone, look, I'm unworthy to untie this man's sandal. It's the one who proclaimed to everyone, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you think genuine faith is devoid of doubt, you don't understand faith. I mean, all you have to do is, is read the Psalms. The, the, the Psalms are, are laced with the psalmist expressing his doubt and sometimes his despair and sometimes his unbelief. Look at all the greats in the Bible. They had moments, some had seasons of doubt and unbelief and struggle. I do. I struggle. I have moments where it's like, I got to preach. Do I really believe this? I'll tell you, though, it's very hard for me to preach something I don't believe. I think those of you who have been here long enough know that. And I'm going to keep it really real up here, which is what I'm doing right now. I have those moments. I'll say this. I'm more fearful today of the person who says, you know what, I I never doubt, I never have doubted, and I never will doubt. I'm I'm more fearful of that person than the person who who, who struggles, who wrestles. Real faith, to me, it's, it's, it's born out of seasons of doubt. And this is why I, 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 I love the, the, the Jewish context or the Jewish approach to the word because they hold it so highly. This is the word of God, thus saith the Lord. But the way that they get to the truth of it is not just by coming up with the right answers and say, here they are. They come at it through questions. They not only validate questions, they encourage questions because the only way that something can become something other than your your parents or your teacher or your pastor is when you go through the process. And that process is going to include doubt. If we don't, I'll tell you what, all we're doing is creating a straw man of just, here's all the right answers, and you give that to our kids. I like what 
Ravi Zacharias said. He said, parents, guess what? Guess what? If all you do is give your kids the right answers, that's a faith that works really well around your kitchen table at night when you're eating a meal. But that does not work in the halls that they walk at school. I like what Tim Keller said, and let me just put this up here. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe, as they do, will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Both of those things are going to come into our lives. You can't protect people from that. And he says a person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and their neighbors. What does God name his people? What? Israel. I love that. What does it mean? Wrestles with God. God wants a people who are going to wrestle with him. Why would God want a people who are going to wrestle with him? For the same reason, the people that I love most and the people who love me most, that there's more wrestling and struggle in those relationships than, than my relationship with someone I don't know. It's because I love them and they love me, which causes sometimes the wrestling. God says, I want you to love me so much, believe me so much, that you feel so comfortable to wrestle with me. I think every single one of us need to ask this question and think about it. Jesus, are you the one? And I don't think any one of us should just blindly assume this. I think it's something we need to examine. I think it's something that we need to wrestle with. If, if, if the greatest man born to woman is wrestling with this, then I think we can too. And what's the cause of John's doubt? Well, look at verse 18. John's disciples told him about all the things, all these things. All the things that Jesus has been saying and doing. Now, now, now you have to ask yourself, why would this cause John to doubt? Well, I think first at face value, all you have to do is look at John and, and, and then look at Jesus and see that these guys are, are two completely, completely different guys. In fact, I even like how Jesus puts this in the, in the text. He, he pretty much says, if you want to know the flavor of John's ministry, it's, it's pretty much like that of a funeral. It's a dirge. If you want to know the flavor of my ministry, it's, it's, it's like that of a grand wedding. I mean, this is all flushed out in verses 32 and 33. He says, John came feasting, or fasting. The, the Son of Man has come feasting and partying. John retreated from the world into the desert. Jesus is the one who moves into the world. He does his ministry on Main Street. Now, this doesn't necessarily make John's funeral flavor wrong, because if I'm honest, 
even though funerals are really hard, I would ten times rather do a funeral than a wedding, only because hearts are just so vulnerable and open at a funeral. At a wedding, God's barely an afterthought. I think more than ever today, we, we, we need the dirge sung, proclaimed that God is a holy God who hates sin and all the injustice of the world, and he's going to do something about it. And who's preaching that today? But for Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, I mean, we've, we've already said this, it's a party. <laughs> It's a big old party of eating and drinking. It's God hosting this banquet for sinners. As Isaiah 61 says, what what Jesus said, I came to fulfill. He said, the kingdom of heaven is the time of God's acceptance. It's the good news that God in Jesus accepts even the worst of sinners. That the tax collectors, the pimps, and the prostitutes can be accepted by God. That even us, in our worst failures, irrespective of who we are or what we have done, because of Christ, God is like a father, a father with arms just open, heart longing for us to come home. And so I think John's looking at this and like, are you kidding me, Jesus? You're partying with all this riffraff? And that's the kingdom of heaven? But I actually think it's deeper than that. Where's John when he sends his disciples? John's in prison. John, just before this, has, has been a rock star. I mean, he's probably... The most well-known, most talked about person in all of Israel. And then, boom! Now he's in Herod's prison. And see, I think Jesus, his message, his way, it's messing with John's paradigm of who he thinks Jesus ought to be. Jesus, why is my life in a pit? Why why am I in a prison? That's supposed to happen to those guys. That's supposed to happen to the bad people. The, The good people are supposed to be experiencing God's blessing. What's wrong, Jesus, with this? Don't you see? In fact, I think Jesus picks up on this because if you look at his response to John, he says, hey man, be assured the kingdom of heaven is being unleashed. And he quotes Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 35. He says, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are made clear, clean, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And good news is preached to the poor. In fact, I, I, I kind of see as John's disciples take Jesus' answer back to John and they go into that prison and they provide, provide John with Jesus' answer. And, 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 and I, I hear them saying, this is what Jesus said, John. He said, guess what, John, the... the the, the blind do see, and the lame do walk, and the lepers are made clear, clean. And I see John just starting to get excited a, a, as he's hearing all this. And, and they say, and the good news is preached to the poor. 
Is that all? Is that all he said? Did he not say anything about the prisoner, about the prisoner being set free? Did he not say anything about the the doors of the prisoner being opened? No, he didn't, John. And I think this is Jesus saying to John, John, look, the kingdom of heaven is being unleashed. But you're not getting out of prison. Because look at what he says next. He says, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. Or, or more literal yet, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Jesus is offensive. You don't say to someone, don't be offended by what I'm about to say if what you're about to say is, is going to be offensive, Right? So he's like, look, John, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He's constantly offending people. Stop making Jesus into this Mr. Rogers. Come on, some of you remember Mr. Rogers, right? You don't put Mr. Rogers to death. Jesus, just by who he was, what he said, the path he laid out. He offends Pharisees. He offends religious people. He he offends the priests of his day. He offends even John. Because his words draw a line in the sand. Either you're going to be for him or you're going to be against him. Either you're going to hate him or you're going to love him with everything you have. Either you're going to pick up stones and stone him or crucify him. Or you're going to fall at his feet and worship him. There is no middle ground with Jesus. And then when you just take everything he just laid out in chapter 6. I have to be honest, if you and I are not offended by what he just laid out, we're not listening to him. In fact, this beatitude in our text today, in in, in verse, um, I think it's verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I mean, this should connect us to the beatitudes that he lays out in chapter 6, verses 20 to 22. And as he says all that in chapter 6, blessed is... Go ahead, Richard. You want me to get that or not, dude? You got it? Hey, man, it's good to see you today. (laughs) You're wide awake too, aren't you, buddy? (laughs) Look at verses 20 and 22 in chapter 6. Blessed are you who are poor. Actually, before that, looking at his disciples. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, and reject you. And your name is as evil because of the Son of Man. And now in the next chapter, we get the capstone to these beatitudes. And blessed are you who aren't offended by
See, in these, in these Beatitudes in, in chapter 6, Jesus isn't just providing hope for the poor and the underprivileged. These are actually the things that are near and dear to his heart. Jesus prizes and treasures these realities. These are the things that mark him and mark his movement, mark his family and his whole kingdom. And even John, I think, is left saying, are you kidding me, Jesus? This is not the Messiah I envisioned. I think John envisioned a Messiah that was characterized by the stuff of verses 24 through 26. All, all the next stuff, all the woes. Because these are the characteristics that characterize all the world's kings. What great king isn't rich and powerful? What great king isn't comfortable and well fed? What great king doesn't have the laughter, that mocking laughter towards being the victor? What great king isn't popular and famous? And what great king doesn't promise this to all its subjects? And I think many of us, if we're really honest right now, we come to Jesus because we want Jesus to be that kind of king who's going to promise these kind of realities in our life. That he's going to make us more prosperous and powerful. He's going to make our lives easy and more comfortable. He's going to take us to the top. And I want us to hear what Jesus said, because if we hear it, I think it's going to mess with us. He says, my kingdom just doesn't just come to the poor and the weak. It's unleashed through poverty and weakness. My kingdom doesn't come just to those in need. It's unleashed through need. It doesn't just come to those who hurt or suffer. It comes through hurt and suffering. And it just doesn't come just to those who are rejected and mistreated. It comes through rejection and mistreatment. And so, John, don't be offended by my way. Because blessed are you, John, when you sit in that blessed place of poverty, weakness, hurt, and mistreatment. Because such is the kingdom of heaven And all John has to do, like all we have to do, is think biblically and historically about God's people when they're at their best. It's not when they're at the top, it's, but it's when they're at the bottom. It's not when they're prosperous and comfortable. It's when they are suffering and in pain. Think about all God's deliverers. Even Elijah was a fugitive for most of his ministry. David and Moses who, yeah, they made it to the top, but they were so much of their lives running from either Pharaoh or Saul, running for their lives. Joseph. Joseph saved God's people by being put in a pit and then a prison and then being forsaken by his brothers. And this is why I can say this morning, Blessed are you, Mark Augustine, when you sit in an emergency room. And blessed are you, Crossroads, when you sit in an emergency room. Or when life takes things from you. Or when life goes bad. 
or where governments and businesses make life really hard. Blessed are you, crossroads, when you're weak. And blessed are you, crossroads, when you're poor. Not just materially poor, but when you're spiritually poor. When you know that before that God, no one can stand. We are utterly bankrupt. We bring nothing to the equation. That's what offends religious people the most. We don't want to come to God empty-handed. We want to think, God, look at all this stuff I have. So, John, you're going to die in prison. Well, guess what, John? I'm going to die on a Roman cross. And, John, you're going to be mistreated by Herod, but I'm going to be mistreated and rejected by Caesar, by the priest, by the Pharisees, by the Herodians, even by the mob. I'm going to be forsaken even by my own disciples. I'm going to be forsaken by my heavenly Father himself. Because this is the way the kingdom comes. There would be no kingdom if Christ didn't become poor, weak, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, utterly rejected and despised. But it's through that that his kingdom is unleashed. I know what some of you are thinking right now. I know it. You're thinking to yourself, tell me, Rod, why isn't this depressing? Answer, because we are not Americans who hold to American values. We are Christians who hold to the values of Christ. And we prize the things that Christ prizes. We boast like Paul in the things that, that, that even Christ would boast in. Weakness, suffering, difficulty. Now here's the good news. When we trust him, his way, his way is the way of life. Because through all the poverty, all the weakness, all the hurt, all the suffering, all the mistreatment, guess what? In the end, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, the prisoner will be set free, and the dead will be raised to new life for those who aren't offended by him. I just want to end with this quote from C.S. Lewis. I just feel like I need to get this thing out regularly in my own life because Jesus' way is so upside down. It's the principle, says C.S. Lewis, that runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and you will find real life, eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Look out for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, and despair. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with everything else, amen. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter.
crossroads. Let's go his way. Let's go his way this year. Let's let Luke 6 begin to define us more and more. I'm just going to ask you to be silent right now. Just bow your heads, close your eyes. Ask yourself these questions. Am I a disciple? To whom do I really belong? Am I really in with God? And would Jesus look at me today and say blessed? Or would he look at me and say, whoa, 